Hey folks, my name is Kurt and I, along with my co-hosts Anders and Sabrina, are here to talk to you about banks. Big banks. To start off with some context, in 2008, the financial crisis brought much instability to the economy. The Fed responded by pumping liquidity into the banking system and bailing out some mortgage companies. But this was not enough. Many financial institutions were on the verge of failing. So, on October 3rd, 2008, President George W. Bush signed the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act into law. According to Investopedia, the U.S. Treasury spent $700 billion to purchase distressed assets, especially mortgage-backed securities and supply cash directly to banks. Simply put, banks took a lot of risks that they probably shouldn't have, and when these investments fell through, they needed help. So I'm going to talk about why this specific policy exists. So bailouts in general give enough consumer confidence so that people don't feel as if their money is in jeopardy sitting in the bank or that they wouldn't get their returns from another financial device. So the federal government is a sort of insurance creating the economic stability that's necessary. According to the Washington Post, the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act was intended to stabilize the economy and save financial institutions that were on the verge of failing since a lot of banks already did fail. So primarily in this podcast, we're going to be concerned about how moral hazard might be involved from the consequences of the Economic Stabilization Act. When we think of moral hazard, we think of maybe the textbook definition, a lack of incentive to guard against risk as another party will typically bear the burden. We might think of simple examples, like when a college student's education is being paid for by a parent, or just being careless when someone else is paying for your insurance. Sabrina just mentioned that this act sort of introduced an insurance for the big banks, which is how we might think of moral hazard as arising. So is there a concern of moral hazard in that the too-big-to-fail banks are going to lend at riskier rates without being worried about default rates? They might think that any consequences they face are going to be fixed by the government and financed by the taxpayers. So, on to the interviews. Joining me now is Professor Michael of Colgate University. Professor, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. So, I suppose we can jump right in. I know we talked about moral hazard some uh, throughout macro, um, and I was hoping you could just sort of characterize briefly what moral hazard means, uh, particularly in a banking focus. Okay, yeah. Well, the moral hazard is a term that came, I think, from the insurance industry, and I, it's an old term. Uh, Keynes in the general theory, for example, uses moral hazard. So it was around in the 30s. It's been around for a while. And you see it everywhere in banking, really. For example, in the relation between banks and their customers, um, and also in the relation between regulators and banks, which is mostly what I'm going to talk about. But the basic idea is very simple. If you, you know, in insurance, if you sell somebody an insurance policy on their house, they might be more careless, and the house might be more likely to burn down simply because they have an insurance policy. So you see that in with banks lending to customers because the customers are going to promise to do something with the money, and then they might turn out they might do something else that's riskier. Uh, and you see it with regulators, which which shows up when uh, regulators provide some kind of a backstop, and that makes banks more likely to take bigger risks and more likely to go uh, to go bankrupt. So that's um, that's the basic uh, place where moral hazard shows up. 
uh, in regulation, what bankers, uh, what what regulators are doing is is basically providing some kind of a solvency backstop to banks. And the reason for that, and we'll probably get into this, there's a benefit, there's a social benefit from having a banking system because it creates a, a payment system, which is sort of like the core financial service. And you don't even think about it. It's like the plumbing. It's behind the wall. But it's, you know, you write a check and you don't even think. But there's a whole set of institutions behind that process of clearing the check. And, you know, there's a clear social benefit to that. So, uh, in effect, what what is going on in the financial system today is that uh, this backstop is, is effectively an implicit subsidy right. to big banks. Yeah, so uh, what we were kind of thinking in formulating our project was that it, it almost did create like a typical insurance-type situation, right? When we talked about it in class, you might think of, oh, a student is having their loans paid for by their parents or something like that, where they're, they're not really facing the full brunt of uh, whatever the risk might be. And so we thought that perhaps post-2008, lending practices or investing practices might have changed in some way. Do you think that that could have happened to, to lead to moral hazard? Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, the conventional argument would be that the Dodd-Frank Act, hmm. the Dodd-Frank Act has eliminated this idea that banks have become too big to fail. Uh, so during the crisis, you know, bailing out Bear Stearns and uh, a couple of other banks. Uh, the, the basic uh, motivation there was that these banks were too big to fail. If they did fail, it had such damaging effects on the payment system and the core financial services that it was worth uh, bailing them out. So, in effect, we were giving them a subsidy. And there's a guy at the Bank of England who calculated the size of that implicit subsidy at, he put it at $1 trillion in 2009. And this is for the global, the big banks, the, the 25 or so uh, uh, globally um, uh, significant banks. If I could, I'd like to go back to this question of, of um, the indicators about, about risk, because it, there are actually some interesting stuff here about whether the market really believes Dodd-Frank, okay? So let me talk about that just briefly. Um, so basically, <clears throat> there's a classic problem in economics called time inconsistency. And that is, if you promise that you're going to do something in the future, um, you're not going to do it unless it's optimal then. The promise means nothing. So I, there, there's some reason to believe that the, the Dodd-Frank Act suffers from that. And the reason, the, the evidence is... If Dodd-Frank works the way it's supposed to, it should make the parent company, the headquarters, uh, more risky than the subsidiaries because of this single point of entry resolution plan. So there are some economists at the New York Fed uh, who published a thing on their blog, Liberty Street blog. It's a really good blog. Uh, so they went out and they looked at the rating agencies and they found that, yeah, the rating agencies did, did that. They, they now rate the the headquarters riskier. But the bond markets and the, uh, the markets for uh, CDS, um, uh, credit default swaps, no, there the, sp the spreads are, are, are flat. 
In other words, they, they rate the headquarters the same as they rate the subsidiaries, uh, even though the, if Dodd-Frank is Im imposed, it's the headquarters that's, that's going to be uh, the, the riskiest. Now joining us is Leslie Picker. She's currently a business reporter for CNBC focusing on hedge funds, private equity, and asset management. She also has experience working with Andrew Ross Sorkin, author of a book telling the inside story of the financial crisis titled Too Big to Fail. The first question is, what might moral hazard mean to the hedge funds, private equity, and asset management firms that you cover? Sure. I think that hedge funds and, and private equity in particular um, operate under this idea that, um, you know, there can be risk taking. They will get rewards from that risk taking. Um, and with moral hazard, um, it helps perpetuate more risk taking with the bull. There will be a backstop that could bail them out if need be. Um, similar to you know, the way that the banks operated in, um, you know, ahead of the 2008 financial crisis, now replaced by what is commonly known as the shadow banking um, community made up of hedge funds and private equity firms that lend um, in the place of banks where banks have been restricted from uh, lending, hedge funds and private equity firms have stepped in en masse to lend to individuals, businesses, uh, large corporations at higher interest rates. Um, they're perceived as riskier loans, and that's why banks have turned them away. But they also um, have been replaced, that hole has been replaced by private equity and hedge funds. Uh, see that same kind of cash flow that they've been seeing previously, you know, what can they do? What kind of collateral do they have? What can, what remedies can they take to ensure that they do pay back their loan? If there are no, uh, remedies that come to mind immediately, if, if an event happens that causes them to be in a worse financial shape, then that would, that would cause them to be a much riskier borrower and therefore have to pay a higher interest rate in order to actually obtain that loan. And then the market determines that the market will say, you know, we believe that this is, um, you know, on a scale of one to 10, for example, this is a 10. So because of that riskiness, we're going to lend them at a, an interest rate um, that would help compensate us for the risk we take in um, doling out that loan to you. Do you know of any particular re regulatory frameworks that change day to day operations for these businesses post financial crisis? Um, for hedge funds or banks? Or? Just for anything that you report on. Um, well, I cover mostly hedge funds and private equity on a day-to-day -day basis. And there were leverage limits put on private equity firms. Um, I think the, the maximum off the top of my head is about six times. Um, EBITDA for, from a leverage standpoint. And so that, that changed things, um, you know, in particular because the traditional LBO leveraged buyouts that were, um, you know, in full force right before the financial crisis, uh, you know, they were putting far higher amounts of leverage on these companies um, when they took them private. And, um, you know, by taking down the number of turns of leverage you can put onto an asset that, um, you know, in theory is meant to protect the asset as well as the private equity firm from engaging in too much riskiness um, and, 
you know, uh, exposure to a particular asset through leverage. And so that is one thing that I think has really changed the industry and changed kind of the risk profile of what they're engaging in. But that said, we've seen, um, you know, a lot of companies kind of go closer toward that six times leverage um, in recent years, given where rates have been at such low levels. And so in order to kind of boost the returns there, um, they've engaged in more leverage. Additionally, it's so much cheaper for them to borrow. So leverage itself just becomes a lot cheaper with lower interest rates. So that was interesting. We initially went into this podcast thinking that the insurance from the bailout would have these huge effects on moral hazard in the banking industry, but both of our guests weren't completely convinced. So, as Kurt said, our guests didn't have much to say as far as opposition. However, it still exists. The public, economists, and politicians have deemed the plan unfair, seeing as the bailout is at the expense of taxpayers and the general public, and that it could lead to long-term negative consequences. Both of our speakers talked about shadow banking, where hedge funds and private equity firms take on risky loans that legislation, like Dodd-Frank, forbid them to do. So the moral hazard isn't gone yet, per se. Instead, it's been pushed off to a different sector of finance where the general public isn't at as much risk. In that sense, like Professor Michael said, the moral hazard implications of too-big-to-fail banks were mitigated by legislation. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in.